Welcome back to the Lydia McGrew channel. Today I'm starting a new series and I've decided to call it Does Axe Support the Trilemma? So those of you who are familiar with my work and my husband Tim's work, you know that in our approach to the resurrection of Jesus, we sometimes use a trilemma argument for the disciples of Jesus. Instead of the trilemma for Jesus himself, not saying anything bad about that, but we're applying it here to the disciples. Either they were lying or they were mistaken or deceived in some way, or they were telling the truth. And then we say that the content of what they said as shown in the gospel accounts shows that they were not likely to be mistaken because that's not the kind of thing that you can just be easily honestly mistaken about and then the context as shown in acts shows that they were very unlikely to be lying because they risked their lives they risked their freedom they risked uh, grave persecution for what they were saying and so the most likely uh, conclusion is that they were in fact telling the truth. Now, I'm not going to be talking in this series about the reliability of the Gospels. That supports that uh, argument that they were not merely mistaken because the content is shown in the Gospels of at least what these people claimed. So this isn't just saying, hey, the Gospels say it, it must have happened. Uh, concerning Jesus' resurrection, but that at least it's not including something that was just made up um, later or at the end of some long telephone game or something like that. Uh, that's not something I'm going to be dealing with in this series. And I'm also not going to argue for the reliability of Acts because the objections that I'm responding to in this series are supposedly based on... Uh, even if the skeptic were to grant that we can take acts at face value when it describes the origins of Christianity. And then, you know, the person will usually say, I don't really take it at face value. I don't really think acts is reliable. We understand that. Um, but the question is, okay, can we get something, something, can we get somewhere if we do take acts at face value? And the objections that I'm answering here will involve saying, oh, even if we did, even if we did uh, consider Acts reliable as far as its descriptions of how Christianity originated and so forth in the preaching of the uh, original disciples and so forth, it still wouldn't really support the resurrection argument. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accept that challenge. But I'm not going to be arguing that acts is reliable. Um, this video today is just set up. It's not going to start giving, you know, the answers to this objection. I may allude to them briefly, but it's just set up to, to set up the kind of objections I'm replying to. Now, one thing I want to say right here is that um, sometimes you'll hear this presented as though Christian apologists, you know, they went out there, they stuck their necks out too far, and then they had to back off. 
Um, they said that the, the disciples really died for their claims. And we don't have uh, sufficient support that, you know, all 12 of the original 12 really died for them and so forth. Oh, so then, you know, these apologists are, oops, you know, they got caught trying to help themselves to too strong of a premise. So they backed off to, they risked death. And Tim and I have always said risked death uh, in all of our published work on this and so forth. So in 2009, when we did the resurrection article, we were careful to say they were willing to risk their lives. They were willing to risk severe persecution and so forth. And it was a credible risk. So <clears throat> that's not some kind of, you know, <clears throat> backing off that we had to do. Um, the, the two versions of this that I'm going to be addressing come from slightly different angles. Bart Ehrman back when he debated my husband Tim some years ago, he said something like, even if we took acts at face value, uh, the disciples weren't out there on street corners uh, presenting this. They were telling stories to their friends and family. So he was, Tim was pushing the hostile context and Ehrman at first just sort of didn't understand and he was kind of laughing what are you talking about you know this kind of thing um and and Justin Brierley was trying to explain what Tim was saying and so forth and then then Ehrman came out with this they weren't out on the street corner saying this they were saying it to their friends and family and uh and Tim said well you know I don't know what version of the book of acts you've got you know but they are definitely out there in public saying it uh, and Ehrman then continued to try to downplay how credible of a risk they were at. And he used a sort of a factoid that there were 8,000 converts and only uh, two arrests by chapter four. He kind of like arbitrarily cut it at chapter four because there's more arrests definitely thereafter. But, uh, you know, that's irrelevant because the the converts are not the ones who are claiming to have originally seen Jesus. We're talking about the leadership. So that's one version. It downplays the extent to which Acts actually supports a credible risk that they were taking. Then another uh, version came out in a, in a video some weeks ago by the, the skeptic YouTuber Apologia. And he said that um, even if we took acts at face value, uh, the original 11 were only testifying until the first time that they were told to stop. And after that, it's just Peter and John. Um, we'll, be, we'll be talking more about that. It's not correct. But um, that version is downplaying the extent to which we really know who was making these proclamations. So I had someone write to me, uh, prompted by that YouTube video some weeks ago and ask me about that. You know, how do we know who was actually proclaiming this besides Peter and John? Uh, and there's a lot of leaning on possible broad uses of the term apostle and so forth. And we'll be getting into that in this series. Um, and so the part of the concern was that 
the others might have apostatized for all we know like you know well we don't have them uh named as the as the book goes on so maybe they just you know got scared and folded under persecution and when you have this confident statement that uh the the original 11 are only speaking until they're first told to stop and after that it's just peter and john uh you know unless you dig into the text then that sounds concerning um it's hard to steel man this so sometimes when you're approaching an objection to your own position you try to do something called steel manning you try to um, make it stronger than maybe it was when the person originally made the objection and this one's really hard to steel man so one reason why it's really hard to steel man is because there is such a blatantly inaccurate representation of what's actually in the book of acts so for example airmen saying that they're only saying these things to their friends and family and they're not out there on the streets and it's right there in acts they're out there on the streets um that makes it hard to steal man it's just like outright saying something that's not correct is a representation of the book um it's it's also kind of hard to to zero in on exactly how the possible broader use of the term apostles is supposed to be a problem after all the gospels tell us about women who um claim to have originally seen the resurrected jesus mary magdalene for example and i don't know of any reason to even think that they were called apostles so already from the gospels if we've argued that those accounts are coming from the p- people in them not that they're necessarily true and we're just gonna you know deductively reason that therefore the resurrection happened but that it's coming they're coming from eyewitnesses they're not just made up stories uh long after the fact or embellished stories then it's not a bad thing to have people besides the 11 who claimed to have seen Jesus you know why, why is that bad you know we we know we had you know all these women you know Joanna Mary Magdalene and so forth they weren't considered part of the 11 but that's good you you have you know more people claiming to a greater variety of experiences or the road to Emmaus story one of the people there is named Clopas I don't know if anybody who claims that Clopas was one of the 11 maybe there's someone out there who does but it, it doesn't matter I mean you know the more the merrier right all all the better so it's a little bit difficult to figure out why a possibly broader group attesting to these things is supposed to be a problem and so the the best that I can do to maybe not exactly steel man this but say why this was a worry would be to say it is separating it's an attempt to separate the content from known persons so um for example we have the speech attributed to peter we actually have several speeches attributed to peter but we don't have you know it's not like in chapter two you have a speech attributed to peter in chapter three you have a speech attributed to james the son of alphius and another one of the eleven and in chapter four you have a speech attributed to um 
Bartholomew or something like that. Boom, boom, boom. Like we have speeches that are uh, claiming to come from specific other people among the 11. And so then the, the idea is, well, see, we don't really have testimony from this larger number of people, or we don't really know what happened to those guys. And that's the other thing is that concern, well, maybe they just fell away and that's why they're represented, you know, there's just a group named the apostles, but maybe nobody wanted to talk about the fact that uh, invisibly, you know, Bartholomew went off and opened a wine shop or something and, and didn't want to be known as a Christian, you know, maybe that was suppressed. And then this amorphous group of apostles was sort of plugged in instead and maybe included people who just had a warm, fuzzy feeling in their heart uh, after Jesus died. And it was like, yeah, fine, well, we'll count you as an apostle that you uh, had an experience of the risen Jesus. So it's an attempt to separate the, the content of the testimony and the risk-taking and the willingness to stick their necks out from actual known people and to suggest the possibility of uh, apostasy or cowardice or something like that on the part of, you know, everybody else except Peter and John and maybe James, the son of Zebedee, who gets his head cut off a little bit later in Acts from among the original 11 disciples. So I'm going to try to be addressing it in those terms. I had a really fruitful exchange with that correspondent and you know I'm not going to name him if you're watching this you know who you are it was it was really um fulfilling to write a lot for that person because he was willing to take the time to read what I wrote and to really interact with it and think hard about it and I'm going to even be crediting him not by name in one of the later videos for a point that I didn't even think of, you know, once he got really into it. Um, but it, it, I had written quite a bit and I forwarded it to some other people. I said, you know, if you have somebody else ask this, here's some stuff I wrote. But I didn't think that was going to come up. You know, I thought this was so niche um, such an odd objection, particularly the, the one from Apologia's channel that I just thought, you know, how many people are really going to need an answer to that? I didn't think it would come up. But within just like a week, Tim said, you know, I'm speaking to someone on a talk about doubts call tomorrow who wants to talk about that very thing. So I began to realize at that point that this had a broader appeal, a broader audience um, that could profit from it than I would otherwise have thought. And so that decided me to do this. And then in listening to the parts of the old debate with Ehrman, I heard Ehrman saying there were 8,000 converts and only two arrests and trying to sort of downplay uh, the extent to which they were really in danger of their lives for attesting that they had personally interacted with the risen Jesus. So I thought I would fold that in here as well. I do not mean to convey the idea that I'm going to get involved in a response, 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 response thing. I, I don't do that typically, um, but I'm using this, the Airman statement and Apologia's statement as a kind of a kickoff to a series that I hope will be of value to other people. 
but I'm not going to think that then, you know, if Paula Gia makes a response video to me, I have to go make another response video to him. I'm, I'm not going to get on that on that train because I think that can be, um, it can be very exhausting and you end up sort of, you know, dancing to the tune of, of your opponent. And I don't want to do that. I just want to be presenting good and useful content here. So that's the setup. The question, does ACTS really support the trilemma? Does it really support the idea that specific named individuals were claiming um, to have seen the risen Jesus in ways that can be credibly connected with the accounts in the Gospels and then under a credible threat to their lives and liberty? Does that support that? If we take its account of the origins of Christianity at face value, that's the question. So a little teaser for next week, I'll be talking about Acts 1 and 2 and emphasizing the election of Matthias, among other things, and the importance that that really has in the history of the church. It's uh, something you might read past without realizing how important it is. So I'll be talking about that next time. And I hope you'll come back to the Lydia Mugru channel where we're making common sense rigorous.